หายเงียบเงียบเงียบเงียบ Okay เงียบ Yeah My record doesn't do anything but I'm gonna use it anyway What the thing that makes us record Oh what does this little red guy do That's that's supposed to be the master volume Oh Like when I turn it all the way down we shouldn't hear anything Oh but we do But we do Ah So it's just a decorative button Yeah like but this should bring me No that's still Okay Well Decorative buttons. <laughs> And here we are. Hello. It's the quickest we've ever gotten into it. Well, look. It, oh, I mean, yeah. Well, one of one of a very few <laughs> times. Welcome to Ghost and Hose. Ghost and Hose. Exactly. Paranormal podcast uh-huh. where we talk about all things spoopy, uh, yep. cryptids. Uh huh. Aliens, sometimes motherfucking witchcraft, yeah, murder most motherfucking foul. Oh yeah, space aliens, sometimes weird shit. Aliens squared mysteries, unsolved and solved. Yeah, so yeah, we talk about all that shit. Wait, yeah, all the things. And the scariest thing of all, fucking taxes, which is what I'm gonna go do. Oh yeah, oh, yeah, Ugh, taxes. Uh, the worst. <laughs> exactly, that's how I feel about them. Uh, well, I gotta send shit to people and get it oh, done for me. So do I. I have to do the shit that I send to them. <laughs> that is true. That's the part that I hate, and I am really procrastinating. Anyway, hi, hey, hi, hello. hi. Hey. Hello. This is weird. It's it's early. What's today? I keep I thinking it's Sunday. It is. A, it's a very Sunday Monday. So thrown off in my days, and I really can't figure out why. Yeah. It's been weird. I know. It's just. It's. Time is a scam. It, I'm sorry. I'm distracted by his chair. It has a tail. I know. I saw that too. It it's like a, a it's, little... it's a, uh, lumbar support. Oh, right. it's like a little pump it up pump. and it blows up the back of my chair. It, but pump it, up your back from the corner, mm-hmm. like in the corner of my eye. You know, like oh, those, it looks like a, a rat tail. The, well, <laughs> it looks you know those trucks that put balls on the back. Uh-huh. That's what <laughs> looks like one of those big trucks that's got testicles hanging Randy's off of their toe chair pitch. balls. Randy's chair balls. <laughs> New T-shirt. Randy's Come chair balls. Come to a truck stop near. You. <laughs> yeah. Oh shit! Do we have any backhoes? Yeah, we do. Yeah. First, shout out to our new patron, uh, Arcadia. Hi. Hi. And there were a couple in there that I believe have upped their pledges, so thank you as well. Oh one of yes, them, thank you. One of them keep like it just happens sometimes where Patreon will randomly send me the same person a few times. I'm like, wait, no, I. <sighs> Thanks. Why? I know that I already. <laughs> I'm aware. Thanks. Stop it. So, if you did upgrade to the next tier and you haven't received that, let me know because Patreon's being weird. So there you go. Oh, La Patroon. Why? Why must you do? Oh, this to La Patroon. Um. Also, speaking of patrons and La Patroon, um, the wonderful. Taylor Maiden sent yes. us a Google Doc yes. as requested or theorized creation by Randall last week. Uh, so, what did I do? You asked if we had a document where we kept all of the um, all the, the stories, right. and then if they were in categories, uh-huh. and Taylor created said document. That's fucking awesome. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I haven't actually looked at it yet. But I know that's what it is. So I don't know what all is on there yet. 
But Thanks, thank you Taylor. for doing that because that was fucking cool. I wouldn't even know what that. I know. Yeah, I know. Any hoops. Um, <laughs> then the photo shoot I was talking about for that competition is yes. for Rue Morgue magazine, not Fangoria. Okay. Because my brain always just ma- meshes the two. Uh-huh. Uh, but voting starts tomorrow, which is yesterday, now that you're hearing this. Tuesday oh, the 6th. Delightful. And how do we vote? <laughs> I will post links, and you can share and vote. Share, share, share. Please, with everyone you've ever met or haven't. If you'd like vote. some exclusive. <laughs> not yet, not vote, yet, not yet. Vote, vote. Yes, please. That would be vote real. Vote for Z. Real cool. Yes, um, it would. Yeah. And then, and then, uh, did you guys, either of you, see the video of the Foo Fighters tribute? Tribute. Yeah. To Taylor Hawkins yep. when his son played the drums. Yep. No, I didn't. Oh, I look right in a lesson three times. And when Dave Grohl was singing Times Like These. And oh, yeah. He oh, kept breaking yeah. up and stopping to cry. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I saw yeah. that. It was. Yeah. I watched the. I watched lovely. his son play oh, yeah. uh-huh. Hero I tried... over and over and over and over. And just the look on his face. I know. Of just that raw emotion. Ugh. Oh, my God. I avoided yeah. watching it for as long as I could. Yeah. And then I was like, okay, fine. And yeah. And then I, I like, cried no, yeah. no less than three times. Fair enough. Was... Fair fucking enough. Oh, bless. Fair enough. Yeah. Today I took it to the wire. Yeah. But you know what? I got her done. I got mm-hmm. her done because we're recording in the morning time. We are recording. Because it, yes. it is a holiday. And, uh, yeah, just getting mm-hmm. shit done, stuff, and things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, well, all right. Well, yeah. fucking, that's it for backhoes? That's all I got, unless you guys have no, something. I don't. He's doing his taxes. Yeah, it's real boring for you. For everybody, and I'm sorry. <laughs> it's okay. I just really... I'm, I'm going to chime in when I can, but it's going to be a lot of me not talking today. I just really uh, hate taxes. So there's I that. fucking hate them. That's why I have not done them and why I got a six-month extension. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. Like, ugh, do please that. don't make me do this. Uh, so, all right, well, who goes first? You do. Oh, well, neat. Let me put on my spectacles. You, yeah, I'm pretty sure. Uh, my spectacles. Yeah. My eyeballs, if you will. Yep. All right. Well, so, do y'all... Wait. What? Are you checking? Yeah. You did spontaneous combustion. Yeah. Do I go first? I don't. Yeah, you, you do. You went I last year. Yeah. Oh well, then let me I take lied. my eyeballs off. I lied. I you liar, was... lying pants. I'm sorry, but it's actually better because mine is maybe somewhat of a bummer. Oh, okay. Um, I was actually in the middle of working on another story, mm-hmm. and my brain was like, "Hey, you stop <laughs> immediately right now." Because remember that one time you heard that really creepy story? You got to look at it. You find it right now, even though you can remember nothing important. Just one single, very scary thing. Yes. And so I was like, oh, well. Okay, brain. Yeah, because I got a brain pan full of goblins. So I'm like, whatever you say, let's fucking do it. And after a few chupacabra holes, mostly related, I found it. And it was worse than I remembered. Oh, shit. So I'm going to tell you all about the case that's given me the full body chills more than once. Uh. It is known as a few different things, but uh, is the haunting of the Andrews family. Okay. 
and the story of Danny LaPlante. I know this name. You'll remember, I think, once I start. Why do I know that name? Well, we'll find out, because I'm about to tell you. Okay, do go on. Maybe refresh your memory. All right. Um, So before I get into it, just a couple of quick notes. There's a lot of false information out there about this story, which is wholly unnecessary, because once you hear the real version... You'll be like, why exaggerate? Bad enough. None none exaggerations needed Bad or required. enough. <clears throat> and if you decide to look up more information on this, uh, be prepared for a little confusion because in some accounts, the members of the Andrews family are addressed as the Bowens. Okay. And I think it's because the daughters were minors at the time. Okay. When it happened. Okay. Um, so they just kind of, you know, protecting identities and yes. change their names. But yes. later... You know, how that works. Fair enough. Um, most of the sources I use refer to them as the Andrews family, so that is how I'll be addressing them today. Mm-hmm. So, let's get into it. Mm-hmm. It was fall of 1986, and Brian Andrews and his daughters, Annie, 15, and Jessica, 8, were living in Pepperell, Massachusetts, and mourning the recent loss of Brian's wife to cancer. Mm-hmm. Um, even though the girls were seven years apart, they were close, and the death of their mother seemed to bring them even closer. So Brian, now a single dad, had started working more hours at his bus driving job in order to bring in some more money. Um, and since it was the 80s, having a teenager was basically the same as having a live-in babysitter. (laughs) Yeah. Meaning the Andrews girls were on their own a lot of the time. Uh, if you're familiar with the term latchkey kid, it applies here. Yes. Um, now Annie was a typical teenager, a.k.a. a little boy crazy. Mm -hmm. So imagine her surprise when she received a call from a local boy named Danny. Uh, he said he'd gotten her number from a mutual friend that went to school with her. Uh, he'd apparently seen her around, thought she was cute, then he found out they had a mutual friend, and here we are. Mm -hmm. So they chatted for a while, and Danny told Annie that he was, you know, athletic, tall, blonde, and while she was a little bit skeptical, she went along with it because, you know, you're 15 and right. a boy is calling you. Right. What's better than that? Almost Not a whole lot nothing. Then. Free tickets and backstage passes to the new kids on the block. <laughs> right. It's the only thing I can think of for 1986 that would be better. Yeah. Eric Estrada showing up at your door. Oh, yeah. Leif Garrett. Into it. All of these things. All of them. All of the above. Yeah. But they're all related to boys. Yes. Somehow. So. A phone call from a boy wanting to get to know you is excellent. Yep. So she was like, you know what? Okay. Uh, They ended up talking on the phone quite a bit over the next week or so, and eventually Danny asked her out on a real in-person date. Mm -hmm. Depending on the source, they uh, arranged to either go out for ice cream or go to the fair. But either way, she was finally going to meet this handsome charmer in person. So the evening of the date rolled around. The doorbell rang. Annie ran to open the door. Only when she did, she was not greeted by a handsome, tall, jockish blonde, whom I'm imagining looks like William Zabka, a.k.a. Johnny Lawrence in The Karate Kid. Ah, yes. For some reason. Uh, but no, she was shocked to see that Danny was actually a scrawny, pimple-faced, greasy, dark-haired little weirdo. Oh. Yeah. Not wanting to be rude, Annie hid her displeasure over being catfished and went on the date anyway. And whomst among us hasn't been there at one point or another, especially in our youths. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like, you're like, ugh, fine. Yep, fine. I'm just, I don't have anything else to do. I may as well. 
Yep. Okay. Now, though, please remember what I've said in the past. Be rude. Be weird. If you're not into it, just who cares? Yep. But anyway, anyway, the date was bad. Okay. It was bad. At one point, Annie started talking about the death of her mother, and Danny was suddenly super interested in everything she had to say and started to ask incredibly invasive and offensive questions. Uh. Things like asking her to describe how much her mother had suffered and quizzing her on how she felt when she learned that her mother had passed. Ew. Yeah. So, Ew. After the obsessive and bizarre interrogation into the death of Annie's mother, the date was brought to an end after one hour. Oh, boy, that turned quick. Yeah, uh, with Annie claiming that she needed to get home. Yeah. Um, yeah. My cat's calling. Yeah, I got, mm, I hear my sister calling me Yeah, with her mind. I have to go pick up my nutritionist and his elderly son. Yeah. So... It's pretty safe to say that she stopped taking his calls after that and went on with her life. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, things would start to get real weird at home. This uh, date was oh. a catalyst for weird shit that's about to come. So shortly after the world's most uncomfortable first and only date, Annie and Jessica were home one evening talking about their mom and decided to hold a little seance to see if maybe they could contact her. Uh, The idea mostly came from boredom, as both girls would later say that they didn't really expect anything to happen. But they had time on a Ouija board on their hands, so they went with it. I think I know this. Yep. You don't say a word. Nope. No, (laughs) ma'am. They went into the basement, lit some candles, and attempted to contact their mother, but nothing really happened. The girls quickly put everything away when their father came home from work, since, you know, satanic panic time and all that. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's conjecture on my part, but mm-hmm. it mm-hmm. does fit with the time, because it, it was 100 does. And you know how that went. I do. So, everyone went to bed. Everything in the house was normal, until it wasn't. Sometime in the night, both girls heard strange rhythmic tapping on the walls in Annie's room. Uh, Initially, they were excited at the possibility that they'd actually managed to contact their mom and that she was communicating with them. Mm. So they'd ask a question and receive disembodied taps in response. But as we all know, when you use a Ouija board or any device meant to commune with the dead, you've got no control over who or what makes contact with you. Sure don't. A lesson the Andrews girls would learn soon enough. The knocking and tapping on the walls became so persistent over time that the girls started to lose sleep. Oof. Uh, They also noticed that it only happened when their father, Brian, was either asleep or not home. And as it does, the activity started ramping up. In addition to the incessant and maddening taps and knocks, things around the house started to go missing, only to randomly appear somewhere else at a much later date and time. I hate it. Mm -hmm. Lights would turn on and off furniture would be moved around sometimes they'd find unflushed urine in the toilets and they're like i didn't do that i don't think uh one site reported the girls finding the bathtub full of pee but i'm not sure if that actually happened that's uh i don't and i don't think they meant like full full of pee but still a lot of pee urine a lot of urine um there was also reports of a trail of pennies being found in the hallway 
another report of the TV channels being changed. Like they'd be in the room watching something, go to the bathroom, come back, and it was totally changed on a completely different channel. Mm-hmm. Nobody else had been in the room. Um, on one occasion, the girls had poured themselves some fiddle faddle. Do let me some fiddle faddle. I miss it with the almonds. Yes. Yeah, almond fiddle faddle. Exactly. That's that's the tits that right was there. A great. I don't, do they make it anymore? I don't know, to be honest. I've never Potentially, paid maybe. I'm going to have to look. I have to go to the store later. I'm going to see if they've got fiddle-faddle. I'll, I'll buy some. Uh, but they put some fiddle-faddle into a bowl for a little movie snack. Of course, as you do. Because it's popcorn with, with nuts in it. And sugar and caramel coating. Yeah. There's no bad. Toffee coating. Not sugar. Yeah. Yeah. yeah there's yeah. nothing bad. Yeah. Nothing no. bad about it. It's a do, great movie snack. Do they still make Cracker Jacks? I think so. I think so. Cracker Jack's a bomb, too. Anyhow. Again, I'll have to check. Hmm. So, snacks. Snacks. They left the bowl on the counter for a few minutes because, you know, you're getting ready for a movie night. Yes. Got to get your pillows, your blankies. We're going to watch Karate Kid. Got to go potty a few times before the movie starts. Get your sodas. You got a little preparation going on. So, you know, abandoning a bowl of fiddle faddle. Got to get the VHS up and running. You do rewind it if you rented it because sometimes you would get it and right. someone had not been kind. Yeah. They did not rewind. Yeah. yeah. No, they were not. Yes, exactly. Rude. And, I Rude. Mean, yeah. Or maybe they had a beta system. 86? Probably VCR. Yeah. Yeah. VCR. I mean, Betamax was around for like an hour. Do you remember laser discs? I do. My grandpa had. Yeah. My uncle did too. Yeah. And I think he still has many discs yeah somewhere upstairs yeah and for those of you that don't know what a laser disc is it's a it's a record sized dvd yep that's exactly <laughs> it. it is the it was the size of an album and yeah. it comes in a case like yeah. an album i can't except tell it was you a movie how many times i have gone to a thrift store looking at records getting excited thinking i have found a soundtrack only to realize it it's was a, a laser, laser disc, disc. It happened again. <laughs> yeah. And then you take it out and it's silver. Oh, it's, yeah. It looks like a giant fucking yeah. DVD. Yep. Anywho. Oh, those those didn't last oh, long. Oh, the either. 80s. They didn't last long at all. No. Like, those were a blip. And they were expensive. I think they were a blip between beta and VHS. Uh, I think it, it was after, because it was Betamax, which was a blip. VHS, and I think it was like the precursor or it happened right around the same time as DVDs. Mm-hmm. Or the, I think Laserdisc came out first. Yeah, yeah. And then and they, they were like, this is dumb. Right? This is an expensive idea for everybody involved. Yeah, except, you know, they all had, you had to have your Laserdisc machine. You did. You had to have your Betamax machine. You did. You had to have your VCR, and then you had to have your DVD player. It was all very expensive to watch movies. It was. Anyway, it do was. go on. I shall, but yeah, <laughs> memory lane. I'm right. God, I remember he was so excited when he got that stupid thing, laser disc, man. And then best quality ever. It wasn't. It was not. So anyway, no laser disc. Oh, laser discs. Oh, laser discs. Um, but, you know, getting ready for their movie night. They've got their fiddle faddle, and um, hang on, I lost my place. This is hateful. Ah, there it is. Yeah, got their fiddle faddle. Left it for a minute, got all set up to watch their movie, went back to get said delicious snack, Mm -hmm. and it was gone. Uh Uh-oh. The bowl 
the fiddle faddle, everything, just gone. Hobble. Uh, and at gone. this point, the girls realized that whatever was haunting their house was not their mom. Um, they told their dad about everything, including the fact that they were being tormented by some kind of malicious entity. But he wrote them off pretty quickly and chalked everything up to the grief of losing their mother. And he just assumed that this was how they were trying to get his attention mm -hmm. since he wasn't home as often as he used to be because of his new busy work schedule. Mm -hmm. And I feel like we've all seen this horror movie, right? Like a weird chain of events, paranormal activity and a parental figure <clears throat> not believing their kids about said activity. Absolutely. And then what happens next? Why shit gets worse, of course. Of course. So in January of 1987, Annie and Jessica were home alone as per usual. They were hanging out in the living room when the tapping started up again. Ruh -ruh. Only this time, it was coming from the basement. I hate it. You should. <clears throat> I do. It's never a good, but uh -uh. Annie, in true final girl fashion, grabbed a knife from the kitchen before going into the basement to check things out. Get it. Which, fucking, yes. Get it. Genius. Mm -hmm. So, Jessica and Annie made it down the stairs, and they saw something written on one of the walls. I hate it. <clears throat> the blood red mm -hmm. substance, mm -hmm. which was very much looked like blood, was dripping down the wall, and it read, I'm in your room. Come and find me. Hmm. Naturally freaked the fuck out, both girls bolted out of the house and went to the neighbors to call their dad. Once Brian got home, he went into the basement to survey the alleged scene. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The writing was there, mm -hmm. but it wasn't blood like they had told him. It was ketchup. <laughs> More convinced than ever that his daughters were acting out, he decided that they both needed to start seeing a counselor in order to address their grief. Right. Yet again... We all know what happens next. Yes, we do. So for the next couple of weeks, the activity in the house subsides and everything starts to feel normal again. Spoiler alert, that wouldn't last. The girls were home alone one night when the knocking suddenly returned. This time, though, it was coming from upstairs. Annie once again grabbed a knife just in cases and started up the stairs with Jessica to find the source of the knocking. It was coming from Annie's room. Nope. They opened the door and saw another message written on the wall. I'm back. Find me if you can. They... I don't want to. Nope. They didn't either because they noped the fuck out of there and ran to the neighbor's house again. They called their dad, who was pretty annoyed, but told them that he would leave work and come home. Right. So once he'd arrived, he marched into his home to see what nonsense his daughters had gotten up to this time. I'll never... Something was off. The yes. living room was in complete disarray, and some sources the TV uh, say that the TV was on with the volume cranked all the way up. Um, the state of the living room was far worse than his daughter's and neighbor had described over the phone, meaning it was now clear to Brian that someone or something had indeed been inside the house. Yeah, Dad. Yeah. He walked up the stairs to Annie's room where he saw a message written on the wall, the one that they had told him about. Uh -huh. But now there was a second one scrawled on a different wall in her room. This one read, Marry me. He saw movement out of the corner of his eye, and when he turned to face it, 
he came face to face with something far more terrifying than any ghost or ghoul. Danny LaPlante holding a hatchet. Holy fuck. Get it. Uh, some sources claim that Danny was wearing a blonde wig, makeup, and the clothes or wedding dress of Brian's deceased wife, but that may have just been some exaggerated details to jazz up the story, which I'll point out again, wholly unnecessary. Totally unnecessary. Jazzy, but unnecessary. Yes. So, Brian is startled as all fuck right. to see a strange 16-year-old hatchet-wielding boy potentially decked out in full Norman Bates regalia in his house. Exactly. A brief struggle ensued, but just as quickly as he appeared, Danny LaPlante vanished. Mm -mm. The police arrived and searched the house for the teen, but were unable to find him. Initially. By chance, one of the officers happened to notice a weird little gap between the wall and a built-in cabinet in Annie's room. I hate it. You should. When they looked closer, they found the door to a crawl space behind it. Yeah. They opened the little goblin-sized door... And curled up inside was Danny LaPlante, who was promptly arrested. Once Danny was out of the house, the investigation continued. In addition to the discovery of the crawl space itself, officers found passage passageways throughout the house and Danny's weird little nest. Because he had been living in their fucking walls. Yes, he had. Jesus fucking Christ. Where was his family? Where did he come from? I will tell you in just a moment. Um, living in the walls. Living, living, living in the walls. Yep. Depending on where you look, he was there for a few weeks, maybe a couple of months, or even close to a year. Uh, there is no acceptable amount of time for someone to live in my fucking walls. So no matter how no. long he was there, still too fucking long. Yeah. Still too, still too long. Yeah. And Get out of there. I am really curious. Who gave this little fucking monster hobgoblin this poor girl's number? Or did he look it up? I will get to that, too. In Tarasanti. See, I knew I knew this name, mm -hmm. but yeah. Yeah. Just, nope. Yeah. So, ew. some reports say that the little room where Danny slept was covered in pennies that he'd glued to the walls and ceiling. Unhinged. Which hate it, if true. Uh, they found food wrappers, empty beer cans, a ton of trash, and a sleeping bag. Mm -hmm. And the space that he was in, not, not, humans shouldn't be in that, such a small space. Gross. I, it's truly, I didn't put it all down, but there was one site from one of the officers that arrested him or was here when this happened mm -hmm. and there's kind of like a crude little drawing of the crawl space mm -hmm. where they found him and it's kind of like a corner just like a little corner behind the bathroom i think um and it's very small and people assume there's like there's no way a person can get in there right. like in the crawls because it was basically like, I want to say it was as wide as a piece of like notebook paper. Mm -hmm. And they're like, no human being can fit in there. Mm -mm. Danny LaPlante is 5'8 and like 100 some odd pounds. Like he was a little, little dude. So Pinner. he could manage to weasel and slither Ugh, into I a crawl space. It. You absolutely should. And I do. <laughs> Um, ugh. 
A couple of sites and podcasts go on to say that they also found articles of clothing that belonged to the girls that had gone missing. All of which were covered in semen. <gasps> Vile. And while all of this is Gross. fucking disturbing, the worst part, which is saying a lot, <laughs> is the peepholes scattered all throughout the house. Oh, no. Yeah, he watched them whenever he wanted from inside the walls. Oh, God. Worse than a ghost. Fucking absolutely, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. 100. I would take 15 ghosts to one unhinged person living in my walls. Hundo P. Hundo P. Yes, please don't. Horrifyingly enough, Danny isn't the only case of this happening. In fact, hey. it's just it's happened often enough that it has a name. What's it called? It's called frogging. Ew. According to an article from AETV, it's described as uh, the crime of individuals secretly living in someone's home is known as frogging, a reference how uh, reference to how frogs leap from place to place. Frogging can take many forms, from transient intruders to more permanent ones in occupied homes or ones where the owner is not in residence. Dolly Ostrike and her secret attic boyfriend, mm -hmm. Otto, mm -hmm. are a case of frogging light, mm -hmm. by the way, because she mm -hmm. knew he was there. She knew. But her husband did not. Right. So, frogging, frogging light, diet mm -hmm. frogging. Diet frogging. That. So, any... Zero calorie frogging. Zero calorie frogging. Yes. Ugh. So exactly whom's to the fuck would think it's a great idea to break into the home of a girl they'd gone on one date with and then pretend to be the ghost of her recently deceased mother in order to torment her for a prolonged period of time? An unhinged nest goblin. Yes, and obviously Danny LaPlante is said unhinged nest goblin. But let's talk about him for just a minute. Let's do that. Just a minute. I am curious. As you well should be. Because he was 16. And that is... Right? That's what I'm saying. Where's not, your family? Not good. And that yeah. just applies over the whole situation. The whole thing. But there's not a ton of information out there about his early life. But what information there is? Mm -hmm. Super bummer. Oh, well. So Daniel J. LaPlante was born on May 16th, 1970. Mm-hmm. And grew up in Townsend, Mass, with his mom and stepdad, Elaine and David Moore, and his brothers, Matthew and Stephen. He was diagnosed with dyslexia at a pretty early age, which made school pretty hard for him. Mm -hmm. uh, he was considered creepy and weird by fellow classmates. Actual quote from people he knew, creepy and weird. Mm -hmm. um, and he didn't have the greatest hygiene practices. Uh, and often ah. showed up at school in dirty clothes, smelling pretty rank. Okay. It shouldn't come as a surprise to learn that he was subjected to quite a bit of teasing. Yes. I was looking at a picture of him and trying to figure out who he reminded me of. He kind of reminds me of one of the boys from Detroit Rock City. Okay. Who was also the... Um, I'm going he in. Was, uh, do you remember Cabin Fever? <sighs> Barely, the, but yeah. The goofy police officer. It's like, you guys want to party? It's that, yeah. it's that yeah, same, yeah, 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 it's yeah. That same yeah. guy, but in Detroit Rock City, who's a little bit younger. Oh. He goes by Giuseppe something. Yeah. I, I think he played. Oh, boy. I think he played Lex in Detroit Rock City. 
Yeah, yeah, but yeah. yeah. That's, oh boy. Yeah. Oh boy. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, he he's got a face that looks unwell. Yeah. So creepy and weird. Not the most hygienic. No. Student. And I again feel like we have all encountered that kid in school. Kids like that where you're like, oh, yeah. something is just off. Wrong. Yeah. Maybe not with you in particular, but just something about it, it makes me sad. Yes. Fair um, enough. Fair like, mm, enough. I don't know what it is because I am also a teenager, Yeah, but I can tell that something is right. maybe not the best right. at home. And guess what? It wasn't. It wasn't. So, just because he was the subject of constant teasing doesn't mean he took it lying down. No, 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 no. I wasn't able to find the original website that this article was featured on, but apparently someone that knew Danny as a kid wrote a piece on him and shared this little tidbit. Oh, boy. Yep. Among the Iron Maiden shirt-wearing toughs, he was the one everyone was scared of because he seemed wrong. I remember his friends taunting a kid, mean but harmless in retrospect, when Danny came out of nowhere and broke his arm. Oh, This was at recess. He was 13 at the time. Yeah. Jesus, take the wheel. Mm -hmm. The Mm -hmm. wheel, Jesus. Mm -hmm. Uh, In later years, Danny would reveal that his childhood was full of abuse, largely at the hands of his father, who not only physically and mentally tormented the boy, but also abused him sexually as well. Ah, fuck. He'd claim that his stepdad also abused him. Uh, His school eventually recommended that Danny see a psychiatrist due to the issues he was having on a regular basis. They're like, something is wrong with Danny. Mm. Um, Not least of all, his lack of personal hygiene. And maybe there's something going on that he needs to talk to someone about. Which, great. Yes. Accurate assessment. For to be fixing it, please. Homestever, win him. The abuse is at the end of the parent hands of the parent. Yep. They're like, oh no, sure, oh, absolutely, we're definitely going to take him in. And you know what? They don't do that. Oh, but they did. Oh, did they? They did. They took him. Wow. His mom took him. Um, mom must not have known about the sexual stuff. Then. Well, I kind of touch on that a little bit. Yeah. But so he did go, and the psychiatrist evaluated him and diagnosed him with hyperactivity disorder. Okay. Uh, he continued seeing the psychiatrist for the next year or so. Though during their sessions, the psychiatrist also began sexually abusing Danny. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. 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 So around around this time, 15-year-old Danny became a petty criminal. Uh, He'd break into houses and steal valuables like a typical cat burglar. Mm -hmm. But there was one difference. Instead of just stealing things... Sometimes Danny liked to leave things in the homes that he stole from. Mm-hmm. He apparently got a huge thrill by messing with people's minds and just thinking about how he was scaring people. Mm-hmm. Uh, he'd break into these homes and move shit around ever so slightly. So when the residents would come home, they'd feel like something was off, but not immediately realize they'd been robbed. It's very Joseph D'Angelo. Mm-hmm. Golden State Killer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He also did similar things, which Gross. is fucking monstrous so he would rifle through their belongings and then maybe he'd leave some 
like move some furniture around. Uh, sometimes he'd drink a can of whatever they had on hand, soda, beer, and leave the half-empty beverage sitting out somewhere. Mm-hmm. Just like, yeah, someone was here. Mm-hmm. Oh, I hate it. It's just real fucked up shit. Mm-hmm. And going back to the date with Annie Andrews, Danny LaPlante had few friends, and I think it's safe to assume that the few he did have weren't going to be the kind of kids that Annie associated with. I'm also pretty comfortable assuming that Danny didn't have any friends at neighboring schools, considering the majority of kids at his own school avoided him at all costs. Yeah. While unverified, it's assumed that Danny had previously broken into the Andrews' home before he started pursuing Annie. Ah, uh, uh-huh. Because he did like to repeat certain houses. He would yeah. go into them multiple times. Okay. So they think he had hit their house mm-hmm. and like maybe seen some pictures or something. And yeah, because they didn't go to the same school. Nope. Right. They did not. Um. Yeah. So, and I think where he was was a town over, not like super far away, but not, he wouldn't have been in a school by hers. So they think that's how he got her Mm -hmm. phone number. Yeah. Um, According to Joe Turner, author of The Boy in the Walls, the events of LaPlante's childhood were the perfect conditions to create a serial killer. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's also alleged that he may have tortured animals as a child which would not be a shock that tracks yeah but there was no like in-depth information on that just a couple sites were like it's been said i'm like i wouldn't doubt be it. shocked yeah, but it no. is not no officially doubt. confirmed right so in an interview with the daily star which yes i know garbage but um Joe Turner elaborated, saying he suffered from child-onset-type conduct disorder, which meant he was predisposed to violent and disruptive behavior from day one. Mm -hmm. His home life was a mess. His father despised him, but his mother naively believed he was a golden child, so LaPlante was constantly pulled between these two extremes, and it massively distorted his outlook on relationships. Wow. Yeah. His sexual urges developed from a very young age, and by 14, he was addicted to pornography. From that point, he had to keep chasing new highs, and that involved stalking, sexual assault, and homicide. Homicide. We are getting to homicide. Yeah. Since he was a minor, Danny was sent to a juvenile detention facility following his arrest at the Andrews house. Mm -hmm. Uh, He was charged with four counts of kidnapping, four counts of armed assault in a dwelling, breaking and entering, larceny of over $100, and malicious destruction of property. Okay, so those are some decent charges. Yeah. Uh, in October of 1987, less than a year after the arrest, Danny's case was moved from the juvenile court into the adult court. Good. He was still a minor, though, even though he was now 17, but the judge had decided to try him as an adult. The only problem with that? Moving the case from or to the adult court system meant that Danny was eligible to post bail. And thanks to his mom, he did. Oh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I see. There's yeah. that little oversight. Yes. That little oversight that they didn't realize his propensity for violence. Yeah. So it's um, going to get even worse now. Got it. 
Uh, he left the juvenile center and returned home literally on Elm Street. <laughs> of course it is. With his family. And if you think that's the end of the story, you're unfortunately gravely mistaken, because guess what? It's about to get even fucking worse. Goblin on Elm Street. The Goblin on Elm That's me. That's my biography <laughs> title. It's the title of my autobiography. Coming someday, maybe. <laughs> so once Danny was out of the detention center and back home, he picked up his criminal activity pretty quickly. Shocking. Uh, in November, remember he get he got out sometime in October. Mm-hmm. November, mm-hmm. he broke into a neighbor's house and stole two handguns, mm-hmm. which is not good in no, any no, case and no, really not here. Actually bad. It's bad. It's so bad. Mm-hmm. On the afternoon of December 1st, 1987, just a little over a week before he was due back in the Middlesex Superior Court to be sentenced, charged... Yes. Whatever for the crimes against the Andrews family. Yes. Ten days. Mm -hmm. Ten days away from court. Ten. He walked about half mile from his house and decided to break into the Gustafson family home, allegedly for the second time. Pregnant 33-year-old preschool teacher Priscilla Gustafson had just recently returned home from work with her five-year-old son, William. Her seven-year-old daughter, Abigail, was still at school, and her attorney husband, Andrew, who was 34, was still at the office. Priscilla taught at their church's preschool and was also a member of the church choir. Mm. And they had recently decorated the house for Christmas. Jesus Which they had to get right on the decorating, because it was December 1st. You know, they're like some people Thanksgiving start, happened yep, the day after now. Thanksgiving. Some people That's get their right. trees. That's right. That's right. That's it's, too soon for a real Christmas tree. I agree. Because by the time Christmas happens, she's going to be dead. I agree. All the needle, that's going to be a fire hazard for I Christmas. Agree that's Merry Christmas. It. It Here's your fire. Too soon. Too soon. But yes. if that's, hey, if, if, that's, if that's what floats your Christmas boat, by all means. Yes. Just please water it. Who am I? <laughs> Who's to my to tell you what to do with yeah. your Christmas decorating? Because yeah, if I had it my way, there would be none. Yes. There would be none. My grandma actually is on board with that this year. Oh, delightful. Yeah, I know. Well, that's an exciting personal development. So let's go back to the really terrible thing that's about to happen. <laughs> <laughs> let's get back to that. If you can't tell, I'm trying to distract everyone from hearing the end of this story because it is really, really upsetting. So, in the choir, top preschool, decorate the house for Christmas. Christmas. Everything is great. It's yeah. wonderful. Baby number three, you're married to a lawyer. Yep. Danny would later claim that he nearly left the Gustafsons' home once he realized he wasn't alone there. But he didn't. He didn't. He then forced Priscilla and William into Priscilla's bedroom, where he tied her up on the bed and locked William in a closet. After beating and raping Priscilla, he placed a pillow over her face and shot her twice in the head at point-blank range. Boy, that just, you know, that that escalated. It sure fucking did. That escalated. He's like, you know, I'm going to live in walls and peep and do things, and now I'm just going to um, kill people. Yeah. That is, yeah. 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 Uh, once he'd killed Priscilla Gustafson, he removed William from the closet and drown him in the upstairs bathroom. What the fuck? Yeah, he allegedly told the boy that his mom was sleeping and then drowned him in the tub. 
As he was leaving the house, he ran into Abigail, who had just returned from school. Mm-hmm. Somehow he convinced her to follow him to the downstairs bathroom, where he proceeded to drown her in the second tub before leaving the house. Yeah, okay. Yep. According yep. to court documents, after fleeing the scene, the defendant went home, ate, and then attended his niece's birthday party as if nothing had happened. Yeah. At around 5 p.m. that evening, Andrew Gustafson returned home and oh, discovered his fuck. wife's body in their now blood-soaked bedroom. Oh, Jesus. He called the police, who discovered the bodies of William and Abigail. He said that he didn't want to go anywhere because he was afraid he would find his children. And he was right. He would have. If he moved, he would have found them. Oh, that hurts my heart. Yeah, it's really bad. That hurts my heart. Yeah. It is Ugh, awful. Jesus Christ. So a search of the home turned up an opened but untouched can of beer, mm -hmm. 22 caliber bullet casings, mm -hmm. shoe prints in the flower bed outside, mm -hmm. and semen stains on the bed. Mm -hmm. A few items, including a cordless phone and a cable box, had been stolen in the process as well. Okay. Cable box. Okay. Buddy, what, what are you going to do with that? I don't know what he could have done. I mean, I guess if you got the box, you could... I know there was a way to, like, steal cable, but I'm just not sure. I don't think he could sell it. The cable box? No. I mean, in the 80s, I can't even remember what the cable box looked like. I think it was large. It just looked like... A big box. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of like... The one we had was that I vaguely remember looked like... A bigger alarm clock, kind of. Yeah. Had red numbers. Yeah. Red analog yeah. Yep, 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 yep. And um, like yeah, wood know. paneling. Yeah, yeah. It was like the very early cable boxes. Yeah. Cordless um, phone. Maybe mm -hmm. cordless I don't fucking, phone. who knows. Yeah. Weird Which, things to take, but I mean. Right, exactly. <laughs> can't rationalize anything that this no, fucking monster has done. Not. So whatever. There is no. I mean, he could have taken a bucket of golf balls and it would have made just as much sense. Exactly. <laughs> Fuck. All right, bro. $500, a cable box. Uh, sure. Yeah, yeah, sure. Just senseless. Yep. So. So bad. Um, All bad. In the fact. horror of the crimes quickly spread throughout Townsend. Uh, police drew up a suspect list, and since Danny LaPlante had recently been convicted of burglary and everything else that happened at the Andrews house, he was pretty high on said list of suspects. Shocking. On December 2nd, the very next day, police located Danny at the public library and questioned him about his whereabouts and potential involvement in the murders that had happened the day before. Mm -hmm. He told them that he wasn't involved in the murders and that he'd been home watching TV for most of the day. He also informed the officers that the only place he'd gone was to his niece's birthday party. Well, they didn't buy his story. Officers didn't have any proof to hold him at the time, Good. so they had to let him go about his day. Briefly. We had some dinner, though. We got dinner. Briefly let him go about his day, because later on that very same day, the cop showed up at Danny's house for further questioning. When they arrived, he was standing on the porch, and when he saw them approaching, he ran off into the woods behind the house. Oh. Obviously something was real fucky about that whole thing. Real fucky. So the officers then conducted a search of the home and the wooded area behind the house, which was essentially, as it turned out, a direct path to the Gustafsons' home, which was mm. less than a mile away. Yeah. Like... 
from his house to their house was yep. pretty much a straight line straight shot. through this little wooded area. Mm-hmm. Not great. Uh, during the search of Danny's house, officers found a 22 caliber bullet casing that matched the ones found at the Gustafsons. Mm-hmm. Uh, a pair of Converse that matched the prints in the Gustafsons' flower bed was found in Danny's closet. Got it. A sock with saliva on it um, was believed to have been used to gag Priscilla Gustafson. Okay. Another sock, along with a tie, some pantyhose, and stockings, had been fashioned into ligatures. And one of the socks had a hair on it that was later proven to belong to Abigail Gustafson. Wow. Later on, a lab analyzed Danny's blood against the semen found on the Gustafson's there bed. There it is. At the time, though, remember yep. it was 1987. Yep, yep, yep. DNA technology wasn't super detailed, but they were able to prove that blood both type. Danny's blood and the semen stains belonged to a type A secretor. Yep. Yep, yep, yep. Hate it. Yep. Uh, they also found the Gustafson's missing phone, which had Danny's thumbprint on it. And during the search, Danny's stepdad found a gun in the glove box of an old Jeep that was just in the yard. Because um, they're those people that have cars in their yard? Yep. Cool. Um, a ballistics expert would later confirm that this was the gun that had been used to murder Priscilla Gustafson. Pretty fucking solid evidence oh, yeah. against the nest goblin. The nest goblin. Um during the search of the wooded area between the two houses, police found a pair of wet gloves and a t-shirt of Danny's, which they believed he had worn the day before during the murders. Wet with? Water. Oh. Probably okay. from drowning the children. Ah, yes. Yeah. Uh, my immediate thought was blood. Nope. But was... then I was like, yep, nope, that, that makes sense. Worse. Uh, very much way. so. Very much like, so. Equally terrible, but... Somehow slightly yeah no worse. Ugh. Oof! And can you imagine how the Andersons must feel? How lucky to be alive? Yeah. With this motherfucker had been living in their home. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Uh, with Danny now on the run and considered armed and incredibly dangerous, police put out an APB like. Keep your eyes fucking open. A fucking PB. Mm-hmm. Let's get them. For the next two days, there were multiple sightings of Danny that were reported, according to that one random article I shared right. earlier. Uh, this was a huge thing in our town of 8,000 people. Nobody locked their doors. I remember my father putting deadbolts on that very afternoon. Oh, fuck yeah. Everybody in school was scared shitless. Things got scarier the next day. They couldn't find him. There were sightings. Word was that he knew the woods like the back of his hand, and he was running around out there. That scared the shit out of me because our house was right against wilderness. That night, I snuck down to the basement, grabbed my dad's machete, and put it under my bed. Yeah. Rational. Totally. Makes all the fucking sense. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, like I said, I mean, when with the, the Night Stalker, night stalker was out and about. Screwdriver oh, under your pillow. I had two knives in my room. Who had a screwdriver? I don't know. Somebody told me they slept with a screwdriver. I had two oh, knives I in my room. Oh, I think it was my friend Francine. Yeah, I had one in my closet and one under my pillow. Yeah. Yeah. Fucking, yeah. Especially because, with that guy, because you never fucking knew. Again, I was a latchkey kid, you know, yeah. and I was older then, but, you know. Still. My mother had a life. I get it. I'd be home, teenager alone, just like the Anderson girls. Mm-hmm. So, Yeah. Straight up. Uh-huh. So, do go on. 
uh, everyone was looking for him. So it was only a matter of time before law enforcement tracked him down. But in the meantime, he continued to be a serious fucking menace. (laughs) And at one point, carjacked a poor woman and forced her to drive him around at gunpoint before she managed to escape. Wow. She called the police and alerted them to the fact that the boy on the news had stolen her van. On December 3rd, 1987, at around 6.30 p.m., after several reports, Danny LaPlante was apprehended after being found hiding out in the dumpster of a lumber yard in Ayer, Mass. Okay. Which is about 11 miles from Townsend. During the second arrest, a gun was found hidden in his underwear. Ew. And according to police on the scene, he was laughing hysterically the whole time. I hate it. That is just, wow. Deeply fucking unsettling. Yeah, and his photo and just, mm, yeah, no. Deeply. Deeply. Unsettling. Oof. Ugh. Uh, When his trial began in October of 1988, the now 18-year-old Danny pled not guilty on all three charges of murder. I believe it was an insanity plea. Mm -hmm. But after another psychological evaluation, he was deemed completely fit to stand trial. Good. And even though he was a minor when he committed the crimes, the judge, a different one from the last time, Mm -hmm. decided to try him as an adult. With no bail. Uh, Yeah. During the trial, Danny was said to be smug and remorseless and wasn't liked by anyone in the courtroom, including his own lawyers. Yeah, I I, I saw some pictures of him as an adult sitting in a courtroom looking smug and remorseless. Yep. So, yeah, that tracks. Yeah. Um, After five hours of deliberation, the jury returned with their verdict. Guilty. Yes. He was then sentenced to serve three consecutive life sentences... One for each life that he had taken. We find you guilty as fuck. Yeah. During his time in prison, Danny has shown little to no remorse for any of his crimes. In 2000, he requested to be moved away from his fellow prisoners after receiving constant threats of violence. Mm-hmm. Uh, his request was granted, and he was kept separate from the other inmates. However, Danny would then turn around and sue the board of prisons because he couldn't access the library... Because segregated prisoners aren't allowed access to said library. Well, do you want to get shanked in the library, Danny? Exactly. Choices. You don't get to have your cake and eat it, too. But he did, because he ended up being awarded $450 for his, quote-unquote, rights being denied. Okay. Well, he's got $450 to spend on ramen. Yep. Good for you, Danny. Uh, He also threw a fit when the porn he received in the mail was confiscated. Which, my guy, you can't have porn in prison. It is. Danny has unrealistic expectations of his stay in yeah. the penal. <laughs> yeah. With yes. system. Exactly. He also words are hard. He also apparently requested carrot cake, uh, sometimes, which no, no, no. You granted it is my least favorite of all cakes, but sir, you deserve no cake. No cake. None. None cake unless it's a urinal cake shoved in your mouth. Yes. Then, yeah, you can have that. Yeah. And that's just the nicest thing I can think of. I would like a root beer float this evening, please. I would like the Gustafson family to not be dead. How about that? Right? Guess what? Like you get room service in prison, you fuck? Get out of here. Eat urinal cakes. 
suck on it. Old ones. Yeah. Sir. So, uh, but uh, clearly, he's not any better. Um, he did manage to get his GED or equivalent whilst in prison. Sure. And he tutored other inmates while taking college courses. But let's be real, he hadn't changed. In 2013, he tried to sue the state of Massachusetts for denying his requests for supplies to practice his newfound religion, Ooh. stating that the prison wasn't allowing him to properly exercise his faith. Okay, is it a made-up religion that he made up himself? He claimed that he was now a devout Wiccan and needed, and this is a quote. I'm going to lose my shit. This is a quote, 30 essential oils and 26 herbs. <laughs> which... Which included honeysuckle, <laughs> lavender, dragon's blood, and black opium for specific rituals. <laughs> Guess how that went over? Not well. Oh, no, they're God like, damn it. We're, no, we're not giving you any of these things. This, no, no, God no. damn it. No, 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 no. You cannot. Your rights are not being denied because you allegedly want to practice witchcraft in prison now. No. God damn it. No. 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 Just no. The no. end. Hard stop. Look, you know what? We don't claim you, Danny, and I'm sure the Wiccans don't either. We do not claim you. <laughs> <Mm-mm>. <laughs> no, thanks. No. No, thank you. No. No, thanks. So... This fucking guy. In 2019, he made an appeal for a reduced sentence and or parole, citing a 2017 change in the law regarding minors being sentenced without the possibility of parole, a bill which some found to be unconstitutional. Mm. Uh, The updated version now says that, and this is a quote from the website, Uh, Juveniles convicted of first-degree murder with extreme cruelty and atrocity would become parole eligible after a minimum of 30 years. Okay. Homestever. Mm -hmm. That law did not retroactively apply to the roughly 60 inmates who had been incarcerated as minors and sentenced to life without parole. Okay. Uh, The appeal was heard. Like, he could still apply an appeal, but he just can't cite this law. Okay. Because they're like, well, that doesn't apply to you because it's not a retroactive thing. It's not going to go back and undo what's already been done. But you can still make an appeal. So he did in 2018. (sighs) During the appeal, Mm -hmm. uh, he said, words cannot fully capture what I have done. I murdered three innocent people. Because of me, a five-year-old boy will never turn six. There's a seven-year-old girl that will never turn eight. Because of me, a woman will never be able to give birth to her third child. I robbed an unborn child of his first breath. A husband was never able again to hear from his family, I love you. I do not have the words to fully express my profound sorrow, but I am truly sorry for the harm I have caused. From the very essence of who I am, from the depth of my soul, I am sorry. Despite his seemingly kind words, experts weren't buying it. Mm -hmm. Um... Psychiatrist said that there was no evidence of emotion, no feelings in his speech. According to forensic psychiatrist Dr. Fabian Sela, who was present mm-hmm. at the hearing, mm-hmm. 
all of this was just a presentation to come across as somebody who is sad about something for which, in my opinion, he was not sad. Mm. It was an execution. He executed one person, went and executed a second person, and then ended up executing a third person. Is he rehabilitated? In my opinion, absolutely not. No. Uh, Priscilla Gustafson's brother, Reverend William Morgan Jr., shared that while he forgave LaPlante, I do not believe that Daniel LaPlante is repentant of his crimes. I believe that he will always be a danger to society and to our children. In my opinion, under no circumstance should Daniel LaPlante be set free. Ever. Uh, Priscilla's sister, Elizabeth Williams, felt similar but a little different in the forgiveness category, mm-hmm. saying, he's the antithesis of good. Yes. Yes, madam. Uh, despite the courtroom crocodile tears, Middlesex Superior Court Judge Helene Kazanjian denied his appeal and resentenced him to the original sentence of three consecutive life terms. Beautiful. Upon handing down her ruling, Judge Kazanjian stated that Mr. LaPlante has not been rehabilitated. This case does not involve a single act that resulted in three deaths. Mr. LaPlante committed three distinct and brutal murders. He killed a 33-year-old pregnant mother and her five- and seven-year-old children. He left a family and community devastated. The court finds that the maximum penalty is warranted. 100%. In 1989, Andrew Gustafson remarried a fellow widow named Carol. Mm -hmm. Uh, They'd both attended the same church with their previous spouses. Uh, Of his second wife, Gustafson said, it certainly would have been much more difficult without her. I don't know whether I would have made it or not without her. Now I have a reason to get up in the morning, something to live for. Mm -hmm. Um, They wore two wedding rings each. Mm Mm-hmm their old wedding rings and their new ones for each other. Um, They went on to have two daughters, Holly and Laura, and Andrew would eventually leave his practice and become a child advocate for the state before moving on and working for the Massachusetts Conference of the United Church of Christ. In a rare interview from 2007, he said of Daniel LaPlante, uh, he could take them, but he couldn't stop my hope, life, faith, and building a new life. And when asked if he had forgiven Daniel LaPlante for his actions, he said, as far as I've come, I don't think I've come far enough to deal with that. I've still got more miles to go in my journey. In 2014, Andrew Gustafson died of cancer at 60 years old. While on his deathbed, he allegedly said of LaPlante, don't ever let him out. He should rot in prison. Yep. Yep. And he he died before that decision was made. Good. Uh, Daniel LaPlante. I mean, not good that he died before, but I mean, good that it happened. yes. Yes. Uh, Daniel LaPlante, now in his 50s, is currently incarcerated at MCI Norfolk Prison in Norfolk, Mass., and will be eligible for parole again in 2032 after serving 45 years in prison. And it won't happen. So there is that. And that is the very unsettling story of Daniel LaPlante. Yeah. You guys, I'm almost done. Woo! Woo! Um... The sources. I knew I knew the name. Mm-hmm. And then the second, I was like, yep, 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 yep. Um, let's see. WBUR.org. Two different articles. One by Giantatus Dumcius. Mm-hmm. And another by Jerome Campbell. AETV.com. Elena Ferrarin. Reddit. Ranker.com, Laura Allen, LATimes.com, Dana Kennedy, APNews.com, Brian Murphy, a Wikipedia, 
MassLive.com, Michael Bonner, DailyStar.co.uk, Simon Hamalienko, okay, mm-hmm. uh, Parkaman.com, Joe Turner, MassCases.com, BostonGlobe.com, Laura Cromaldi, FantasyTour.com, MamaMia.com.au, Billy Fitzsimmons, um, I don't know if it's Celtic or Celtic Centennial because it's in Boston. Mm. So that mm-hmm. by Lieutenant, former Lieutenant Thomas Lane. He was the one that was there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, JoeTurnerBooks.com. Joe Turner. <laughs> the Cinemaholic.com. Creative Marotra. TalkMurderWithMe.com. Natalie. And then my favorite murder, episode 137, called Glugle. Told by Karen <laughs> Great story. Yeah. Horrific, horrible Just story. Terrible. You know, and Daniel LaPlante was one of those perfect storms. Yep. I can't remember. It was deemed that he was born with that sort of disorder that mm-hmm. I can't remember what it was, but basically he's bad. He was born bad. It happens. It really fucking does. But then you have someone like that, and then it's you a perfect storm. In. You add in the abuses, mm-hmm. and it is a perfect storm. That being said, not everyone that has that type of childhood goes out and does things like that. No, they do not. Absolutely not. They do not. Um, but it's just that perfect fucking storm where a, a killer is created. And whether, you know, they choose to act upon it, it's like we've said with serial killers, you know. I think that they're born, triggered, and go sideways. Yeah. Onset type conduct disorder. Right. So. Yeah. You know, it's, and he went down that path. Did. But yeah, he's he's a smug looking fucker. He really is, even to this day. Or the yeah, most, I saw the most recent photos. You're like, oh, you're yeah. I looked. I was like, you're gross. Shit, you're gross. Fuck you. Look at your stupid fucking face. Fucking fuck. Wiccans don't want you, bro. No, the Wiccans don't want ya. So, well, I have a story. It's a little bit more fun than yours. Oh, good. (laughs) Please. I mean, there's death, sure, but it's still, it's still, you know, well, you'll see. So, remember last week when I mentioned that Marianne Cotton's lawyer, Charles Russell, was involved in two other famous poisoning trials during his career? Yes. Of course you do. Well, today I'm going to tell you about Miss Adelaide Blanche Bartlett and the Pimlico Mystery, as well as Miss Florence Maybrick. And since Miss Adelaide's story takes place first in ye old timeline, mm-hmm. then that is where we are going to start. Perfect. So the Pimlico mystery is the name that was given to the circumstances surrounding the 1886 death of Thomas Edwin Bartlett, possibly at the hands of his wife Adelaide in the Pimlico district of London. Gotcha. Hence the name. So French-born Adelaide Blanche de la Tremoille, 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 de la Tremoille. Sure. Married Thomas Edwin Bartlett in 1875 when she was 19 and he was 29. He came from a close-knit family of successful and prosperous grocers, and Adelaide seemed to not be so much into the close-knit family dynamic that she had married into. Mm. Edwin, however, seemed to have no interest 
in satisfying his young wife sexually, and within a year of their marriage, she had begun an affair with her brother-in-law. So I'd say she's taken to that close-knit family dynamic, but maybe not in the best way. So Adelaide would later say that her marriage to Edwin was always intended to be a platonic marriage. Hmm. But in 1881, she had a stillborn baby by Hmm. Edwin. Maybe. Potentially. 50-50? Maybe? Or 25-25-25-25. Could be. Depending Uh on how busy she was. Yep, yep, yep. So Five to six weeks ago. And she was cute. So, anywho, Edwin had refused her female nurse's advice to call the male doctor during Adelaide's very difficult labor, saying that he did not want another man to interfere with her. Fuck off, Edwin. Edwin. Which is why the baby didn't get out in time and was born stillborn. So, yeah, fuck off, Edwin. Early in 1885, Adelaide had met and become friends with Reverend George Dyson, who had become Adelaide's tutor and the couple's spiritual counselor and friend. Yeah, boy. And if the story that Adelaide and Reverend Dyson would eventually tell was true, then the good reverend was encouraged to openly romance and have an affair with Adelaide Bartlett by Edwin himself. Oh. That's the story that they are going to sell. Oh, okay. So, yeah. Edwin made Reverend Dyson the executor of his will, in which he left his entire estate to Adelaide on the condition that she did not remarry, which was a common stipulation in those days. Mm -hmm. Later, however, Edwin redrew the will four months before his eventual death, uh, removing the bar on Adelaide remarrying. Suspect and highly questionable. I'll say. See, Edwin suffered from a few common maladies of the time. First off, he had several rotting teeth. Hot. And tapeworms. Hotter. Right. So hot. Right. Who loves a tapeworm and is definitely not terrified of that? Sploosh. Right now, so basements are you just flooded? Yeah, Yeah. basement rotting teeth and tapeworms. Oh my god! Right, I need, I need. Not only do I need new pants, I already need new pants from the new pants. Right, I mean just just a bucket and a mop. Yep, (laughs) yep, straight up, straight up. Macaroni in a pot. You know the rest of that. (laughs) Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. Edwin, the only, Edwin was killing it. The only good thing to come out of 2020. Yeah. That song. <laughs> that song. <laughs> so towards the end of 1885, Adelaide asked old Rev Dyson if he could pick up some chloroform that had been prescribed by the doctor that was treating Edwin. Which I love that that was something you could be prescribed. Yeah. A doctor, Alfred Leach. Leach would later admit that he prescribed it reluctantly and at the insistence of his patient, Edwin. Yeah. Okay. He's like, just fucking sedate me. Yeah. Under the laws of the day, one had to sign a book at the chemist's pharmacy as a record of buying medical poisons, but only for large amounts. (laughs) You fools! Reverend Dyson bought four small bottles of chloroform instead of one large bottle, and he also bought them in several shops, claiming that he needed it to remove grease stains. Reverend. Bruh. Is lying not a sin? Bruh. My. Right. My guy. And it was only after Edwin's death did the good reverend claim to suddenly realize how suspicious his actions were. 
Oh, bless it. My guy. Bless your heart. You are sus as fuck. You dummy. So, on New Year's Eve, December 31st, 1885, Edwin Bartlett came home from a visit to the dentist because rotting fucking mouth and went to sleep alongside his wife in their Pimlico flat. And just before 4 a.m. the next morning, Adelaide Adelaide (laughs) asked their maid to get Dr. Leach saying that Edwin was dead before waking the landlady. The coroner would later say that Edwin's stomach was filled with liquid chloroform. Homestever. You cannot get me harder than I currently (laughs) am. There were no burns upon anywhere that there should have been for someone that had chloroform. Because chloroform, you put it on the rag, you do the inhale, Mm -hmm. you do that... You put it in a thing. Normally, you would put it in a little decant. You put the rag yeah. in there and then put the thing to your face instead of just putting the rag to your face because yeah. it will burn. Chemical burns. Right. But when people are kidnapping you, they don't give a fuck. No. But that's back in the day. It was put into a contraption and then on your face yeah. and then the night. Bedtime, good night time. Right. Bedtime, good night time. So... According to... I feel like I may have heard this case before. According to Adelaide, it must have definitely been a suicide. And the story may have been believed except Edwin's father, who never liked Adelaide after suspecting her affair with his younger son, um, became extremely suspicious and he persuaded the authorities to look into Edwin's death. An inquest under Mr. A. Braxton Hicks returned the verdict of willful willful murder by Adelaide Bartlett with George Dyson being an accessory before the fact they were both arrested. Got it. But can we talk about that doctor? Because is he the one that came up with the false labor? Because I feel like it's named Braxton after him. Braxton Hicks, right? <laughs> you know what? I don't know. I didn't even look at that. Is, That's funny, though. Is the time frame <laughs> yeah. and the name, I feel like it has to be the it same guy. It has to be. Has to be. Has to be. Yes to me. There anyway. it is. Yeah. So the trial opened on April 12th, 1886, attracting a fuck ton of press coverage, both in the UK and abroad. At the opening of the trial, charges were read out against both George Dyson and Adelaide, but the prosecution immediately asked for the charges against the good reverend to be dropped, and he was formally acquitted. This enabled the prosecution to call him as a witness, but it also made it possible for the defense to take advantage of his testimony. Adelaide was defended by Sir Edward Clark, who pressed the narrative that Thomas Bartlett had committed suicide. The prosecution was in the hands, as was traditional in England and Wales until 1957, of the Attorney General at the time, Sir Charles Russell. Adelaide was not able to testify in her own defense, which no defendant could until the Criminal Evidence Act of 1898, and the defense called no witnesses and gave a fucking six-hour Closing statement. Well, that is a very long statement. Six fucking hours. My guy. What the fuck can you say about a seemingly cut and dry suicide for six goddamn hours? Yeah. Six hours. Six, six, six hours. Six. P.S. Hours. It was the same guy. Ah, see? John, John Braxton Hicks, 19th century English doctor who specialized in obstetrics. There we go. Now we know. So, where am I? There we go. Anyway, the court's 
ears must have been fucking bleeding by the end. Uh, The main bit of forensics for Adelaide's case was that the liquid chloroform reached the stomach without burning the sides of the throat and the larynx. How? Well, this assisted the suicide theory by suggesting that Edwin must have chugged it so quickly with the intent of poisoning himself that there was no time for it to burn him. That's not how that works. Right. So, there we go. I'm like, where the fuck am I? So, when the jury returned to the court after considering its verdict, the foreman said, although we think grave suspicion is attached to the prisoner, we do not think that there is sufficient evidence to show how or by whom the chloroform was administered. The foreman then confirmed the verdict was not guilty. And the courtroom went up in loud applause because public opinion was that Adelaide was innocent. The issue of how the poison got into Edwin's stomach without burning him internally led surgeon Sir James Paget to say, now that she has been acquitted for murder and cannot be tried again, she should tell us in the interest of science how she did it. Oh. After the trial, both Adelaide Bartlett and Reverend George Dyson vanished from public. The public eye, I should say. The authors of the 1939 book, The Life of Sir Edward Clark, report that they had an impression that Adelaide Bartlett did later marry George Dyson. But then they had also heard a theory that the two never met again. Now on to Miss Florence. Florence Maybrick was born Florence Elizabeth Chandler in Mobile, Alabama. She was the daughter of William George Chandler, a one-time mayor of Mobile and a partner in the banking firm of St. John Powers & Company, and Caroline Chandler Dubarry. Florence's father had died before her birth and her mother remarried for the third time in 1872, because her father was her second marriage, to Baron Adolf von Roque, a cavalry officer in the 8th Cuirassier Regiment of the German Army. While headed to Europe, traveling by ship to Britain with her mother to re, uh, words are hard, Yeah, to get over there with her husband, you know, go over there. Uh, Florence met 42-year-old cotton broker James Maybrick. The pair created quite the scandal. A 19-year-old girl spending so much time alone in the company of not only a man, but one who was 23 years her senior. Okay. Not unheard of of the time, but inappropriate nonetheless because they run chaperoned. The couple became a thing and they were married July 27, 1881 at St. James Church, Piccadilly in London. And they settled in his family home of Battlecrease House in Eggberth, which is a sub, words are hard, mm. suburb of Liverpool. So Florence made quite the impression on the social scene in Liverpool, and the Maybricks were usually invited to the most important balls, soirees, and functions. They were the it couple. They were the very picture of a happy and successful couple, except they weren't. See, James was a hypochondriac and was a regular user of arsenic and basically any type of opium-based medicine. Right. James also had a number of mistresses, one of whom he had five children with. Right. Florence, meanwhile, increasingly unhappy in her marriage, picked up some side pieces of her own. One of which was a local businessman named Alfred Brierly, which when her husband found out about, 
He assaulted Florence and asked her for a divorce, to which she was like, Hundo P. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, you just beat my ass because I got my own side piece. You have many and five children with one of them. So you can absolutely eat a ton of dicks, an entire metric ton of penises in a bag. Choke on them. <laughs> okay. So here's where it gets a bit fucky. James Maybrick became ill on April 27th, 1889, after self-administering a double dose of strychnine. Meaning he he overdosed himself. Okay, so his doctors treated him for acute dyspepsia, basically means upset stomach. Mm -hmm. Right. Opium, barfing, sick, OD, right. Well, his condition continued to deteriorate. Like, he never came out of it. On May 8th, my birthday... Florence wrote a letter to her lover, Alfred, which was intercepted by the nanny, Alice Yap, who hated Florence. Yap intercepted all letters sent by Florence, and she would give them to her husband's, Florence's husband's brother, Edwin, who was staying at Battlecrease House. Edwin himself, by many accounts, was also one of Florence's lovers and shared the contents of the letter with his brother, Michael Maybrick, who was the head of the family and who also hated Florence. (laughs) By Michael's orders, Florence was immediately deposed as mistress of the house and held under house arrest. On May 9th, a nurse reported that Florence had tampered with a Valentine's meat juice bottle that was afterwards found to contain a half grain of arsenic. What is Valentine's meat juice? Well, yes, please. I googled it. It's a health tonic made from beef juice. I'm assuming broth. I'm thinking maybe bone broth, but it's meat juice. And it was supposedly a health tonic. You know, back in those days, there's all kinds of tonics for all kinds of things. And most of them contained some level of poison yeah. or and or cocaine. So, so yes. Right. Um, anywho. Um, Florence later testified that her husband had begged her to give it to him as a pick-me-up. Remember, he was an addict, so that Mm -hmm. does track. And for all the maids tattletailing, James actually never drank that meat juice. Okay. That she put the arsenic in with her husband begging her to. But anyway, on May 11th, 1889, he died in bed at the couple's home. His brothers, suspicious as hell to the cause of death, had his body examined. It was found to contain slight traces of arsenic, but not enough to be considered fatal. Again, he was an addict, so there's no way to know or tell if what was found in his system was taken by himself or administered by another person. But again, they weren't fatal traces. So in April 1889, Florence Maybrick was accused by the Maybrick brothers of using fly paper containing arsenic from that purchased from a chemist shop soaked in a bowl of water, which, as we know from previous stories, was very fucking common. And after an inquest that seems flimsy at best, Florence was charged with murder and stood trial at St. George's Hall in Liverpool, where she was convicted and sentenced to fucking death. Death. Even though the amount of arsenic in his system was not fatal. No fatal dose. Slight traces of arsenic. Not enough to be considered fatal. So. Anywho. 
her trial was reported in newspapers as being a miscarriage of justice, and the prosecution evi- prosecution's evidence was shoddy as fuck. After the verdict, crowds shouted in favor of Florence, believing she was being accused of a murder that she did not commit. After a public outcry, Henry Matthews, the Home Secretary, and Lord Chancellor Halsbury concluded that the evidence clearly establishes that Mrs. Maybrick administered poison to her husband with intent to murder, but that there is no ground for reasonable doubt whether the arsenic so administered was in fact the cause of his death. My good sirs, say you were wrong without saying you were wrong, because what the (laughs) fuck? You basically just said... The evidence clearly establishes that she gave poison to her husband to murder him, but that there is ground for doubt on whether the arsenic was what killed him. My good sirs, say you were wrong without saying you were wrong. Say we have no evidence, but we want to convict her anyway. Just say that. Just say that. Please. Say that. So um, Florence's death sentence after their little statement of we're wrong, but we're going to do this anyway, Mm -hmm. was commuted to life imprisonment as punishment for a crime in which she was never actually charged. They couldn't charge her. They're just saying, well, the evidence says that she was going to kill him, but that we don't necessarily think that the arsenic in his body was put in there by her. Sure. So. During the 1890s, new evidence was publicized by Florence's supporters, but there was no possibility of an appeal, and the Home Office was not down to release her in spite of the strenuous efforts of Lord Russell, the Lord Chief Justice. Like Adelaide's case, Florence's was also a social media... Nope. (laughs) Nope. Not at all. (laughs) Not at all was also a media spectacle and attracted considerable newspaper coverage on both sides of the Atlantic. Arsenic was then regarded by some men as an aphrodisiac and tonic, and James Maybrick had certainly taken it on a regular basis. Remember, he OD'd himself on said arsenic. So, a city chemist confirmed that he had supplied Maybrick with quantities of arsenic over a lengthy period, and a search of the couple's home later turned up enough arsenic to kill at least 50 fucking people. 50. In, J- in James's possession, James, James's little, his little fucking That's apothecary of arsenic, his little medicine so cabinet. Many. Right. So, again, I would say... Let me rephrase that. I would assume that if she wanted to poison him, there would have been a hell of a lot more than trace amounts, and she could still say he did it to himself. Clearly, they wouldn't believe her. Yeah. Ugh. He didn't have enough arsenic in his system to kill him. And there was enough in the home to kill 50 fucking people. Yeah. None of it. Right. So, although her marriage was clearly over in all but name Florence had little motive to actually murder her husband he had lovers she had lovers what's the motive so the financial provision Maybrick had made for her and his children in his will was barely anything and she would have been better off with him alive and legally separated however many people held 
Um, Okay, many people held the view that Florence had poisoned her husband because she was going to divorce him. However, in Victorian society, that would have ruined her and she would have very well lost custody of her children and they would have gone to him. Um, After her sentence was commuted to life, Florence was transported to Woking District Female Convict Prison, where she remained until 1896, and she was moved to Aylesbury Prison. Florence spent her first nine months in solitary confinement before being moved to a different cell block, but still remaining under the strictures of the silence system, meaning that silence was enforced in the prison at all times. Florence later wrote a memoir called My 15 Lost Years, where she spoke about the physical and mental toll that solitary confinement had on her, calling the practice by far the most cruel feature of English penal servitude and emphasized on how the desolation and despair that the hopeless monotony of confinement made her feel. During her time at Woking, Florence suffered from insomnia and frequent poor health caused by, she claimed, by the frequent screaming and destruction of the content of one's cell during the night by the mentally unwell inmates, um, which left her with quivering nerves and unable to sleep. Florence was released from prison in January 1904, having spent more than 14 years behind bars. Although she had lost her U.S. citizenship when she married her British husband, it was restored to her when she went back to her home country. Initially, she earned a living on the lecture circuit, speaking on prison reform and continuing to protest her innocence. In later life, she moved to Connecticut using her maiden name, Florence Elizabeth Chandler, and after some months spent unsuccessfully working as a housekeeper, Florence became a recluse living in a squalid three-room bungalow in Gaylordsville, Connecticut with her cats. Squalid? Squalid. What does that mean? Dirty. Overgrown. Uh, okay, so yeah, squal- similar to squalor. Yes. Okay. Florence Maybrick died alone and penniless in her home in New Milford, Connecticut, on October 23rd, 1941. Among her few possessions were a scrapbook with newspaper clippings of her former life and a tattered family Bible. She never saw her children again, and they were raised by the family's doctor, the Maybrick family's doctor. Interesting side note. In 2015, after 15 years of research, writer and film director Bruce Robinson published a book that I own called They All Love Jack, Busting the Ripper, which is a massive study of Jack the Ripper, Mm -hmm. in which he makes the case that Florence Maybrick and her husband were the victims of her brother-in-law, Michael Maybrick whom Robinson claims was, in fact, Jack the fucking Ripper. But that, too, is a story for another time. No, no. And that is the stories, are the stories, of uh, the two other poisoning cases for Sir Russell. And, uh, yeah, I thought they were a little, they were kind of fun. So I was like, yeah, fun. Fun death. Fun death. Um, so I don't have a whole lot of sources mm-hmm. uh, because there's very few sources mm-hmm. on both of these cases, and they're all the fucking same. Yeah. So many a wiki and Murderpedias actually had the best condensed versions of 
everything. And that's all I have Very nice. for today. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah, I thought those were fun stories. They are. I thought those were fun stories. Um, yeah, but... God, clients are texting me. It's a Monday. It is a Monday. So, anywho, we done done it. We done do it. We done done it. Um, good, good, good. I'm glad. I'm glad. I'm so sorry I haven't been present. No, that's okay. That's okay. Um, well, you know the drill. Rate, review, subscribe, share, share, share. If you would like some exclusive motherfucking content, go become a patron on the Patron. Yeah. Um, also, don't forget to send us your videos about uh, our contest. Our contest. You get free weekend passes to meow, the meow, 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 meow. Pacific Northwest True Crime Fest. Hells to the air. Yeah. October 7th, no, 8th and 9th, 8th and 9th. Yep, 8th and 9th, 8th and 9th. Um, yeah, go into your local electronic stores, go subscribe to our podcast on at least five devices. Yep, we'll send, send us a you. video, we'll send you something. Yeah. And if you go to... HonestHistoryMag.co, use the promo code... GNH. As in... Go G is in ghosts, N is in, and H is in hoes. You get 10% <laughs> off your first purchase for the Honest History Magazine, which is a really fucking cool history magazine with dope illustrations and yep. stories that are uh, researched, written, and illustrated by the folks who share the culture with the subject. Yeah. So, so, fuck, yeah. And then vote for me in the thing. That is vote and share. Yes, please. Share and vote. Share and vote. Vote, vote, vote. The Um, links will be all over the social medias, so you can find that. Do that thing. And you know, if you have to, you guys, something that I encourage, you know, if you need to feel good about something, just roll it up, put it in your butt. Until next time, y'all. Hexes and hoes, y'all. Hexes and hoes, y'all. Bye. Bye. Hats off to the fuck you Mm -hmm. club. Take it away. Fuck you, Daniel LaPlante. You flaming dumpster fire piece of shit garbage motherfucking human. Is he even human? No, he's a nest goblin. He's a fucking nest goblin. Fuck you. Fuck you. Rotten prison, you rotten, rotten fuck. Yes, that's how I feel about that. Sounds like I missed a good episode. Choke on a, <laughs> choke on a very used urinal cake. Choke on one million bags. Roll it up, put it in your butt. Of dicks. <laughs>